You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Samir Bayes. Uh, he holds a PhD from Harvard. He has a lab at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, a very famous lab for many years. Uh, he's principal investigator there, and we're going to be talking um, about cellular signaling and uh, cellular states. So I'm looking forward to this. So, Samir, thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, so tell me, uh, how would you describe your work? What What would you call it? I just gave a very brief description, but... Yeah, what are you working on? Yeah, so the simplest question uh, we are trying to address, which is actually very complicated, is uh, to figure out if we are really what we eat. So diets can um, play a huge role, as you all know, in our lives, including uh, uh, contributing to disease states uh, such as obesity and cancer. And there's a lot of... Uh, ambiguity in terms of the signaling mechanisms or the um, cellular mechanisms that can um, influence how uh, nutrients are regulating um, our uh, physiology at, you know, like organ level, molecular level, and cellular level. And so um, what's, I mean, traditional medicine, sadly, it seems to say that, uh, oh, nutrition really doesn't, uh, you know, affect biology very much. But you know, when when you look at it, you know, let's say we're going to live 80 years, the only inputs to our cells, the primary inputs are food, water, air, you know, then maybe chemical exposure, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, it, just to me, it's like, how could those not be the major defining inputs of what we are? That, yeah. you know, we're we're so, made up of what we consume. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, even if you look at the most uh, simple organisms, what they eat uh, define their status and their health is dependent on that. So uh, we are not different uh, than this. We are uh, significantly shaped by what we eat. Um, so uh, diet and metabolic alterations due to diet can uh, have a significant effect on physiology, on the way that organs function. The cells within that organs are influenced by that. And uh, uh, microbes in our guts that can influence many uh, uh, physiological processes are significantly dependent on what type of uh, nutrients uh, we are consuming. So uh, you're right, actually, the nutrients are significantly impacting our lives, but we know very little about how they are doing it. Even, you know, I was thinking, even the act of eating, it's weird if you think about, like, literally what's happening. You know, in, in one way, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, like, our physiology is using the bond energy of the electrons and the molecules of the food we're eating to power ourselves. 
in another way, um, I'm sure we're taking in the constituent atoms and molecules that constitute the food and literally integrating it into our structure ourselves. But yeah. when, when I thought about eating, I mean, is that what's going on? Or am I crazy? And if so, it's, it's weird to think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, the main reason that we eat is we need energy. So, so it's understood in that context, like how you digest nutrients when you eat, uh, you know, micromolecule digestion is, you no. Know, we understand how our digestive tract is handling um, these nutrients. So let's say if you eat um, a piece of cake, we know what is it, what it is going to be converted at the um, micronutrient level, such as, you know, sugar, amino acids or fatty acids. We know how these are processed in the body. And that was understood the past uh, century. Um, however, we have very limited understanding what happens next. So let's say you have now, you consumed uh, a burger or uh, you ate bacon and then that had lots of fat in it. And that fat get digested into fatty acids. And then that fatty acid now is circulating in your body or being stored in some cells. How this fatty acid now in, is influencing those cells that it is exposed to? Um, and so this is one uh, research question that we have in our lab. Uh, we try to understand um, how uh, dietary fat and obesity, which can have uh, dysregulated uh, uh, fat biology uh, in in the body can influence diseases such as cancer, and uh, and uh, epidemiological data suggesting that uh, obesity is strongly associated with diseases like cancer and type two diabetes. But the causal mechanisms are still not very uh, clear. So in the lab, that's the that's the link that we are trying to make from the moment you eat something how does it transform your body at the uh, physiological level cellular level and molecular level and i can give you more information if you are curious as, as to specific examples yeah right exactly so you're, you're in one way you're studying eating like literally what is happening when you're eating i guess like i said I, we have something called the electron transport chain it's yeah. part of you know sugar metabolism. So I mean, in one yeah. way, literally, it, it's like uh, it's kind of like the Panama Canal. We're using literally the bond energy of various molecules and moving yeah. this one here and moving that one there. And you know, are we actually literally using that that energy of those bonds to power us? Or you know, we're using that energy of those bonds to assemble yeah. molecules that are beneficial yeah. to us to break down other ones. I mean, it's just a strange. Yeah thing when you think about it yeah so bo both is true what you're suggesting so we use and uh, what we eat influences how this energy is being utilized in each cell in our body but in addition to that what you eat can also provide some input to each cell to um, um, instruct that cell what to do so those are like the environmental signals that regulate or that um, help a cell to function or to acquire a, a, a phenotypic state. So I'll give you an example. For example, if you eat a nutrient that has uh, a lot of vitamin A, um, that vitamin A you know, can carry out some vitamin A-related metabolic functions and also can be a ligand, can be a signal for a specific receptor in the 
body that can activate and turn on certain genes in response to uh, vitamin A. So you both use nutrient as a source of energy where you incorporate this into your body and it can be part of your body mass or it can be used as an energy source to carry out certain reactions, but it can also uh, be used as a signal, as an environmental signal in your in your body. So yeah, what, what uh, I don't know, what amazes you about what you're studying? What surprises you? What, what new things have you figured out that you, yeah. you can't believe it? Yeah, so we, we initially focused on a model uh, where we try to understand how diet can influence risk of cancer by feeding um, certain um, um, mouse models with a high-fat diet and try to assess uh, cellular and molecular mechanisms that can contribute to cancer risk. And we found very surprisingly that the fatty acids that are in the diet can activate um, stem cells in an abnormal way and those stem cells when they are abnormally activated they can acquire some oncogenic mutations and contribute to cancer so now we are expanding on this observation and trying to figure out how these individual fatty acids can affect immune system can affect microbiota uh, can affect the way that immune system can survey uh, cancer cells and we are finding lots of uh, interesting mechanisms that can help us uh, to treat cancer, either in the context of obesity or, you know, just in general uh, by utilizing immune system against cancer, which is now very common with the um, uh, discovery of, um, you know, immunotherapy as a potent uh, therapy for cancer. Well, first question. So you said you fed rats a high-fat diet, but high-fat and low-carb or just high-fat period, high-fat yeah. low-sugar? I mean, what were the other... Yeah. What was the other yeah. constituency, the macronutrients? Yeah, so this is a very commonly used, uh, the initial study that we used was a very commonly used diet-induced obesity model, which is um, high in fat and also not low in carbs. So it was, uh, uh, I would say, you know, like 60% of the calories were coming from fat, but it had also enough uh, uh, micronutrients uh, in the context of like car carbohydrates. However, you are touching on a very important question. How does diet pattern, like when you change the fraction of other nutrients, how does this influence uh, uh, cancer incidence or, or biology is an active area of investigation. So if you have very low carb with very high fat, that's called ketogenic diet because you force your body to produce molecules called ketone bodies. Uh, when you don't have enough um, sugar to use as a primary energy source. So a high-fat, low-carb diet does not always have the same effect as a high-fat, high-carb diet. So that's the complication. We, uh, you know, By changing the ratio of two micronutrients, you can change uh, drastically how these cellular uh, pathways are changing that can influence the risk of cancer. Right. Well, so I what? think it's important to point that out because then you'll say, oh, a high-fat diet leads to cancer. Well, not necessarily. It can be high-fat in the presence of high sugar, in the presence yeah. of carbs, not in the presence. So why is that so common in scientific yeah. studies where that's not elucidated? Because it's very misleading, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, so that's basically the rationale for us to study that because, uh, you know, there is not much um, being done. 
to assess the causality of these associations. And so, you know, we published some papers showing some proteinogenic effects of a um, high-fat diet in a diet-induced obesity model. But I always refrain from using that fat causes cancer. I think it's all context-dependent. And uh, we need to understand the mechanisms so that we can target the mechanisms uh, for uh, therapy. So when you think about the, the diversity of uh, potential dietary patterns that humans uh, may have, uh, it's impossible to study these things in humans. Um, you can study obesity uh, or obese patients. And even in that context, there are some variations. Uh, for that reason, we developed some systems where we study this on a dish, on a lab dish. So we uh, grow uh, tissue structures called organoids. And so in that context, then you can study how different ratios of uh, nutrients such as fat and sugar can influence the mechanistic basis of, the, uh, of, uh, of that link that has been postulated between diet and cancer or obesity and cancer. So have you created a series of stomach organoids? Is that what you're saying? Or what kind of organoids? So we, so we do, uh, we study uh, intestine. So we, we created intestinal organoids. And so we try to understand uh, how does those nutrients influence immune cells and uh, epithelial cells in a way that we construct this in a three-dimensional environment uh, on a dish uh, using organoids and isolated cell types. But in these organoids, though, what's the microbiome pro profile? Do they even have a microbiome, the organoids? Because that could be a, a major yeah. profound, I yeah. mean, a confounding factor. Yeah, so right now, like when you make an organoid that does not have a, a microbial component, but there are some studies, and we have been trying those uh, strategies as well, uh, you can provide some factors that you isolate uh, from, a, from a microbiota and add it onto the uh, organoid to understand the interaction between the microbes and the, and the epithelial cells. Is that what you guys are doing? I mean, do your organoids have a uh, microbiome associated with them? Or uh, we, yeah, we don't microbiome. Yeah, we mostly try to provide the factors from the microbiota, either like metabolites or some ligands that are triggering immune system. Uh, so right now we are not um, recreating the um, uh, actual uh, physiological interaction that can happen, but it's. Um, close enough. It's good enough that we can study it, but it's not perfect. And, you know, our goal is uh, in utilizing these uh, uh, dish-based culture systems is because uh, this will allow us to also utilize human samples and we can rely less on uh, mouse or rat experiments uh, and do more humanly uh, relevant uh, studies. Um, do you know of anyone that has uh created organoids and, uh, you know, partnered them with uh, various bacteria that would occur in the gut to yeah, see their so interaction? That? Yeah. So there are studies uh, that use a different approach called uh, organ-on-a-chip technology. And with those, uh, there are some studies who have uh, demonstrated uh, the ability of growing um, you know, certain bacteria together with the you know, mucosal layer of the, of the epithelium. Uh, we, we haven't done it in my lab yet, uh, but we are looking into it and it would be great actually as the technology improves to model the interaction between different cell types in our body uh, in vitro, 
that would be very useful for us to use and uh, ask the question, how does now nutrients influence uh, those interactions? How does uh, fat or sugar or uh, vitamins or other metabolites can influence uh, those interactions? Well, have there been studies where um, you have two mice, you know, one has a normal microbiome or some microbiome, one doesn't, and then you give them the same exact food, and then you see what essentially what comes out, you know, look at their feces and see if it's of a completely different character or not, you know, or, or yeah. look at them longitudinally because, you know, what if the microbial fraction interacts so heavily with the intestines that it just, it's a dramatic change from what they would uh, would do without it. And then that uh, kind of ends up, I don't know, maybe what if it, if it makes all the research uh, useless? Yeah, so so the microbes are drastically um, respond to dietary changes. So microbes uh, during the day they change their community composition, um, but um, they reach a balance in a given organism. So um, I'll give you. I mean, the best example I can give you is you should consider microbiome as a ecosystem, such as you know, like an Amazon rainforest. So like in the Amazon rainforest, um, depending on, you know, like the season or the climate of the um, region, you can have different types of um, uh, animals represented or, you know, even uh, plants represented. And so you can change that representation by skewing the climate or by changing the, uh, um, the input that you give to that ecosystem. And same thing happens in um, the dietary challenges or other challenges that you do to the intestine, um, microbes drastically change. But then the question is, how much of these changes are causal to a particular phenotype that you're studying, such as, you know, like cancer or diabetes or, or depression? So the answer is some of them are causal. So people have published some studies. We have some uh, studies that are going to publish soon. Uh, we can identify some causal links where microbes can influence, uh, the changes in microbes can influence uh, the phenotypes that we are observing. Uh, but most of the time, uh, these changes are just correlation. So you can find uh, statistically significant microbial alterations based on any input that you give, uh, but finding a causal link is not that easy. Uh, you can even find a microbe that correlates with the type of jacket that you uh, wear uh, every day or, the, uh, or you know, like the, the way that you, uh, if you run or if you don't run to work, it can change your microbiota. But we don't know how much of these changes are going to affect causally uh, a phenotypic outcome. I guess, you know, my worry would be that, you know, you study the models without the microbiome. But again, they have such a dramatic influence that, you know, what if you wasted years of research? What if the things you find just don't apply at all? It's like oh, studying I drugs. See. And then once you get to a human, it's so different that the drug doesn't work. You know, I guess yeah. I, yeah. it would just be, a, so, it would be a concern. Yeah. So that's a very valid concern. But I think it would be um, important to also know that. So you, in science, we do sometimes reductionist work where we take individual modules and we study the mechanism. And then we go back and confirm whether or not that mechanism that we uncovered holds true within the in vivo complexity. So in, in, all, in all of our studies, we try to do that. So we study the mechanism, let's say, in an ex vivo 
system on a dish where you know it's devoid of many other variables. Uh, but then once we find a mechanistic node, then we confirm this mechanism in vivo. And so uh, that is true both for uh, in vivo, is meaning that inside the body for uh, mouse-based experiments and for human-based experiments. But of course, every approach has its own limitations and the best uh, scientific discoveries come from evaluating those limitations and, uh, and um, and you know, finding what is what is really uh, uh, matter and what the truth is. And so, in some of our phenotypes, they are influenced by microbes, uh, but some of them are not. So it's it's a matter of finding in what sense microbes play a critical role. If they are playing a critical role, then avoiding microbes in our studies will confound those studies for sure. But uh, we always trace back and check back and confirm uh, that our phenotypes that we are studying, such as risk of cancer or stem cell activity or immune activity, uh, is confirmed within the organism, uh, within all these complexities of the organism. So what about the uh, the cellular signaling? You know, in the same tissue type, okay, I could see an organoid would, would emulate that, but you know, it seems to me there's tremendous uh, communication between the the gut and yeah, and first receiving signals from the mouth when you first start eating, yeah, um, the brain. I mean, that yeah. all seems to be left out of the equation again. How do you incorporate yeah. all that and see what that does? Yeah, so like answering this uh, in one experiment is impossible. So that's why we take a modular approach. So like my lab has expertise in stem cell biology and immunology, so we can do um a reductionist work that can focus on particular mechanisms uh, within individual compartment of the uh, uh, of cells uh, so for uh, questions that are targeting stem cells we mostly uh, use uh, organoids to model it for immune cells we do some immune activation or migration assays uh, for microbiota, you need to use it from the host organism. So we, we try to do some sequencing experiments and try to understand how the composition or the abundance of, uh, of bacteria and microbes are changing. Um, but integration of all these modules and components is the challenging aspect. Because uh, in science, as I told you, you need to like zoom in and be reductionist to uncover one thing. You need to be very, very focused but that super laser focus sometimes forces you to neglect other contributing factors in a tissue. Uh, so we are hoping that in the next um, maybe five to 10 years, with the advancement in uh, profiling technologies, such as you know single cell uh, gene expression profiling, single cell metabolite profiling, uh, we will be able to get a cell-based resolution of these uh, uh, these interactions and how these interactions are changed in response to diet and nutrition and, and other diseases. But right now, it's very, very difficult because when you look at a tissue, this tissue has probably, you know, like multiple uh, different cell types in different states and they can respond to different signals and you cannot measure all the signals at the same time right now. Uh, you can measure one by one or maybe, you know, two or three of them in one cell type. But in a tissue, let's say you have 20 cell types that can uh, be critical for the function of that tissue. For example, in the intestine, you have goblet cells that can secrete mucus. 
you have absorptive cells that can absorb nutrients, you have panic cells that can secrete antimicrobials. And so, you know, like you cannot study all these different cell types in one experiment, you need to study them separately. And some laboratories spend, you know, like uh, their entire career on focusing on just like one particular cell type and how certain signaling molecules influence that particular cell type. So um, long story short, I think in the uh, current state of uh, you know, scientific knowledge, uh, we are getting hints on how different components of cell types interact and uh, how different signals regulate these cells, uh, but we don't have a comprehensive understanding. So in the next five to 10 years, uh, with integration uh, methods and uh, you know that involve computational biology and also uh, profiling methods that can account for like single um, single cells, we will be able to get that level of resolution. So what what have you elucidated? What major concepts or you know really interesting things have you discovered with your current yeah. models already so far? Yeah. So, so before I came to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, I uh, studied how immune system uh, develops uh, by the um, fun by the help of certain epigenetic enzymes, which can help turning on and off certain genes in a given cell. And so that was a, a important discovery for us to understand how certain cells can acquire functional and phenotypic state because uh, you share the same DNA in all your cell types, but the way that you utilize that DNA um, is called epigenetics and it helps, you know, like to, for you to have distinct cell types in your body and distinct cell states in your body. So in immune system, that's a very commonly observed feature. You have immune cells that uh, have lots of different functional characteristics. And, you know, like, you know that um, there are probably cells that can uh, engulf some uh, bacteria. There are cells that can, you know, like react to it by secreting some cytotoxic molecules. And so the, the, the discovery that we made was focusing on a particular cell type uh, that can recognize some lipid antigens. And we, are, we wanted to understand how specifically uh, these cells develop by opening and closing certain parts of the DNA. So that was one discovery we made to understand how immune cell states are governed. And then the second important discovery we made was uh, using this diet-induced obesity as a model, how does um, a high-fat diet contribute to tumor formation by influencing uh, stem cell biology? And we found that fatty acids can activate a specific transcription factor that senses those fatty acids in the stem cells and then make those stem cells hyperactive. And this hyperactivation, when it's coupled with an oncogenic mutation, can increase um, risk of uh, cancer in the intestine. And so now in my lab, we are building upon these observations and we are working on understanding how does this uh, link between diet and cancer or obesity and cancer can be studied in an integrated way. And in that context, now we have found that when you um, uh, perturb uh, the system by the high-fat diet, uh, the changes in the microbiota affect the way that uh, immune cells, such as T cells, uh, survey uh, tumor-initiating cells 
in the gut. And so that's now like building upon our previous observations, now connecting uh, different modules, uh, stem cell module and immune cell module, and then using microbes also like as a separate module in, in, in understanding how cancer risk can be affected by diet. And um, uh, the ongoing investigations are focusing on like how immunity is changing, what are different immune cell subsets, uh, that are responding differently to different types of nutrients, uh, and we are uh, we are getting some interesting results that can hopefully be useful for understanding and treating uh, cancer. Well, what uh, what can you talk about? What kind of interesting results are you seeing? You said that uh, you know high yeah. fat diet, more prevalence of fatty acids, those seem to turn on certain oncogenic functions. Any uh, any other interesting insights? Yeah, so in the context of immune cells, uh, as I mentioned to you, we, we find that when you give high-fat diets, uh, uh, which is, a you know, like one type of high-fat diet, which is lab-based, uh, you uh, down-regulate uh, certain molecules that allow immune cells to recognize uh, tumor-initiating uh, cells. So that recognition is a fundamental mechanism that the immune system uh, utilizes uh, uh, to uh, to find and destroy um, threat in our body. And we found that a high-fat diet dampens that mechanism by um, certain mechanisms that involve microbiota. So to go into more of the specifics, we find that the diet uh, that is high in fat, depletes certain microbes, and these microbes are necessary to an extent in, uh, in maintaining uh, the immune recognition molecules on the um, uh, epithelial cells which initiate the tumor. And then when immune recognition is not proper, immune cells cannot respond and clear the, um, the tumor and uh, we found that if you uh, have a epithelial cell or epithelial tumor initiating cell that is devoid of this um, immune recognition molecule on their cell surface, they can give rise to much more tumor formation. So that's a link between basically uh, diet and cancer that uh, involves tumor immune recognition. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I guess there's so much to uh, to figure out. It's uh, kind of mind-boggling. <laughs> um, what would be a uh, a happy result for you to have in the next you know couple of years with your studies? What What do you think is possible to figure out? Yeah, I mean, my biggest passion is to understand how does uh, the nutri nutrient as an input since the moment that you start eating it digesting it, you know, releasing it to individual cells, how does uh, this process influence the, uh, the, the molecular and cellular mechanisms that define what we call health and contribute to uh, disease state? Because we don't know it. So, like, I want to create a blueprint of all the changes that can occur uh, in response to a um, nutritional perturbation. And so this is a very difficult thing to do. I know all the complexities because uh, there are so many different signaling pathways and so many different cell types that can be altered. 
but as I mentioned, if you do a reductionist modular approach while keeping your um, mind open, uh, I believe that's going to be doable. So, you know, dissect individual cell types and individual modules piece by piece, and then just like recreate the puzzle. Um, and so that's been, um, you know, so far uh, relatively successful. And we are hoping in the next few years, uh, we'll be able to make uh, impactful discoveries using that strategy. Okay, well, very good. What, what's the best way for people interested to dip their toe in uh, to start finding out about organoids, about you know various cancer studies, et cetera. What what do you recommend they start with their interest? Uh, so for uh, for nutrition related stuff, I would recommend them to uh, uh, follow like American Cancer Society or uh, CDC or FDA guidelines. If uh, you know like they they can find them, I think online. I would refrain from following any hyped up non scientifically. Uh, generated claims online. So those are very uh, concerning to see as a scientist. So there are lots of big claims out there. If you go research about like how diet influences your health, I would suggest, uh, you know, like people to try to find the primary literature. I know it's very difficult to understand all the scientific terms and stuff, but, uh, you know, like if you read a few papers here and there and like then try to uh, look at more um, uh, popular science articles that are backed by scientific literature. Um, that can be helpful for organoid-based studies. Um, now this is uh, becoming more and more popular in the um, academia. Uh, so historically, people use cell lines, which are grown as a 2D layers on dish. And now many labs are utilizing organoids to model disease and study uh, cancer biology and other and um, other disease modeling strategies. And for that, I think um, American Tissue Culture Collection is gonna have some informational um, tools. And so, like individual laboratories, like my lab and other labs around the world, they have some informational um, uh, like websites and videos. Uh, so I would recommend uh, finding those. Uh, but making sure that these are supported by primary literature and not some, uh, you know, like hyped up big claim that is not supported by scientific studies. Right. Okay. And what's the best way for folks to find out more from you, read papers from your lab, get in touch, etc.? Yeah. Well, I'm not very active on like social media, so I don't have Twitter or uh, Instagram or whatever social media outlets out there now. Uh, I have a lab uh, kind of profile and then I have an email address that I use so I'm still uh, you know uh, uh, learning how to utilize the technological advances in dissipate, uh, disseminating uh, science uh, but yeah my email address probably will be the easiest way uh, to reach out and of course as I mentioned so scientific publications are always deposited to a public database uh, called PubMed for biological and medical sciences at www.pubmed.gov. And so like people can find articles in, in PubMed, Google Scholar is another uh, database for uh, papers. Um, but uh, yeah, like my email address is beaz at 
cshl.edu and if anyone has any uh, question or more info, would like more information about our research uh, i'll be happy to uh, respond okay well very good well i appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast yeah it's great thank you so much for hosting you're listening to the future tech podcast with richard jacobs Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.